This is Game Theory, our podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, hosted by me, Nick Andrews, and my brother, Chris. In this episode, we can neither confirm nor deny. Say you're paying attention to a murder investigation with all your free time. There are leads, suspects, and intrigue all over the place. You take a break from work and you tune into a huge press conference that has everyone's attention. The official at the press conference doesn't say much, and when asked a specific question, responds, I can neither confirm nor deny. That response has a name. It's called the Glomar response. And after an event and legal case that happened about 50 years ago, the CIA didn't want to jeopardize national security. So despite being a government organization, they were told they were in the clear to say that. Since then, that phrase has been picked apart and its authentic use has come into question. Just last year, Congress looked into the use of the phrase as a blanket tool from the government to not tell people the truth. And welcome to episode 61, that's 6-1 with a 6 and a 1, of Game Theory, a podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making. I am Nick Andrews, and Chris is over there, and um, I, I see, if you're not watching on YouTube, you can, I can see Chris is bringing back the 1970s uh, investigative reporter uh, look right now. He's got the beer, he's got the flow, the flow is, it's, 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 a, it's a respectable flow, like that's a man, that's a man about society. I watched a, another Rush documentary recently. Mm-hmm. No, I'm not the not the original one from like 2012 or whenever, but one about like their last tour. Mm-hmm. And man, the 70s. I, I don't know. I, like, forget the early 2000s. Forget yeah. the 90s. No, we're bringing the 70s back, and uh, it's appropriate for today's topic, I think, which we'll get into later. But you know, right. I gotta say, I appreciate the uh, the comp. I mean, I don't know. I feel like it looks good. I like. I it. feel like the only difference between me. And photos of our dad from him at this like age in his life is that he was doing this kind of middle part mm-hmm. thing, and I'm sticking with the millennial side, like the corner of the rectangle of my. I face I am part. genuinely surprised and tickled that you know about the side part, middle part thing that's going on on the internet. That is great opsec from you. Uh, look, I, when it comes to being online, when it comes to being up to date on pop culture, I. I wouldn't say I've been around the block, but I turned the corner. I turned the corner. Okay. <laughs> I know a thing or two. Um, so we're talking today about the Glomar response, which is something that all of you have heard. It means when someone did something good or bad, and we have some instances of things going on in the world that this is going to be applicable to right now, it is when someone says, I can neither confirm nor deny any responsibility or knowledge of or whatever. That's called the Glomar response. There's a word for it, and there's a whole history to it. Uh, first of all, we did not copy Radiolab. They did this a while ago. I've never listened to a Radiolab except for Freakonomic stuff, and that doesn't count. One. Two, there are too many podcasts. <laughs> Three, that takes way too much work to copy Radiolab. They're like legit, and we're just, we're kind of, we're, we're jackasses, essentially. Yeah, no, we're we're like, we're like a zit on the ass of the larger body of work <laughs> that is podcasting and content production. Oh, and Radiolab is like a vital organ yeah. of that. I feel like they're they're like pioneers. Like, were they a podcast first? I feel like they were a radio segment on NPR first. So Radiolab, 
Yeah, it's hard to explain. Essentially, if you want to go down the history of podcasting, I will do this this much. Um, essentially, all of the public radio figured out that they could just be on demand. And so like different segments of different public radio stuff started to do on demand. And then they took a whole bunch of credit for making podcasts popular when in reality. And I mean this in all sincerity. Joe Rogan is the reason podcasts are popular. Uh, him and like three or four of his friends and a bunch of truckers. But and you remember years ago, we were like we were like hanging out at grandma's house or something, yeah. just like shooting the shit with like Cayman mm-hmm. and Uncle Craig. It's like, man, those are the days. It was like, oh, yeah, you heard this guy? Yeah, mm-hmm. he asked a lot of like really cool, hard-hitting questions. Yes. He interviews like really interesting people. And it's like, man, at that time, it, that had to be like what? Like we were in high school, maybe. I think JRE College. started in like fourteen, fifteen, somewhere in there. Okay, so so we would have right been we would have yeah. been like on on the on the tail end of college. So it's like at that point, on demand was still like a new thing. You could order Netflix, but like yeah. hearing like the inside stuff, like if you're not watching sixty minutes exclusive interviews or like ESPN behind the scenes production that airs at a specific time and a specific date, like you're not just you're just not getting access to that information. No, so. No. Yeah, so pretty that's, revolutionary at the time. Yeah, I I have uh, worked as a consultant a couple times, and I've been in podcasting professionally for a long time. And I've given the speech, and I will tell you that everybody thinks that public radio had a lot to do with it because they made that very Googleable. Absolutely not. Comedians made this happen, and then NPR amazing. and Serial showed up, and every that's when the game changed. But Serial, obviously, uh, amazing. But the Glomar response is what we're talking about today. Um, as a journalist, I have some takes on this. I've thought about this pretty deeply because it's such an interesting use of like six words or seven words or whatever it is. I can neither confirm nor deny because like can is positive. So we'll get into the history of all that and we'll get into that. This episode is brought to you uh, by our friend Justin's book. And there will yes. be a link in the description. And again, uh, we're going to read the book. We've not read the book. We're going to read the book. And then we're going to endorse the book as long as there's not. I mean, I know that he's a good dude. Who knows? I, I'm sure there's no anti-Semitism or, or, or Satanism in there. But if we're going to make sure. <laughs> we're going to go through it with a fine-tooth comb like right. those uh, Roald Dahl and uh, Ian Fleming book oh, yeah, yeah, sensitivity yeah. readers. Yep. Uh, and we'll make sure to uh, to republish another version that has been desensitized. Did you hear about that? Yes. Um, also, I watched Harry Potter 8 last night, and that motherfucker's been edited. Well, I mean, many movies are. Mm, but it was edited. It was... And also, my, my wife and I love Muppets Christmas Carol. That movie's been edited in an aggressive way, and yes. there are sub-communities on Reddit that are f- fucking mad. So Disney was bullied into putting the unedited version back on Disney+. Plus. But Harry Potter, now from HBO to Peacock, Harry Potter has been edited. There is one scene that has been tinkered with, and I was like, it was like 1130. I couldn't sleep, and also, you know, the Sunday scaries, and and, uh, oh, I also heard this. Um, uh, Half effort Mondays. I'll look it up. There's there's something else. Minimum effort Mondays. Minimum effort Mondays. That's right. Anyway, the scene where, spoiler alert, Molly Weasley kills Bellatrix Lestrange, all of their banter and shit talking, and when she calls her a bitch... Gone. No talking. Are you kidding me? They cut it out. Yeah. It had to be. You had to be watching the ABC family. I watched. Dude, I looked. So it was on NBC. It's on Peacock. Oh, NBC. Okay. It's a Peacock. So it's still a family show. Yeah, but you're watching uh, the poker show, and that is not. What's that called? Poker. Well, it's the one with the dude from poker Knives face? Out. What's it? Poker Face, right? Yeah, Poker Face. That show is not family friendly. Well, no, but... Because uh, mm, I don't think HBO would edit those out. And now I'm on a journey. It's like, will someone just please put the goddamn unedited something online? Okay. 
I digress. I have no idea how we got there except to say that this episode is brought to you by a friend, Justin's book. It's available on Amazon. You can click the link. And if you click the link, it'll be like, hey, this many people listen to the podcast and are interested in it. Um, you could click the link and just show traffic. You could click the link and buy the book. You could click the link and buy the book and read the book. It's all up to you. It's about how to win or how not to lose. The price is right. Yeah, really, really interesting look at all the data. Mm-hmm. You can go back and, and listen to our podcast episode where we feature Justin. Uh, really interesting take. Uh, people generally underbet. People don't make maximum use of the opportunities they have to right. try to wager for stuff. And really fascinating topic. And it, I, I think it has a lot of life lessons. It, you know, it's a game show. So unless you're on the game show, okay, how applicable is it to you? Mm-hmm. I think it's really useful. And I, I think it's a good lesson in how to understand how your biases could be affecting your strategic thinking and your decision making. And it's a good way to like divorce that from the real world kind of mathematical approach and help optimize some of the decisions uh, in your own life. Yes. And I, I think that really want to spread the word on this book for a couple of reasons. One of which is that there are a bunch of nerds who make their living doing various things involving fantasy and gambling and sports and games, yes. poker, a lot in football and basketball. And that was going to be reined in eventually because gambling is an addictive life destroying habit. <clears throat> but right now there's kind of a gold rush for content creators and there's a lot of game theory analytics dudes out there. And like those people should want to read the book. So we're going to try to spread the word because this is the exact kind of thing that people are trying to cut through the middle of like what efficiencies are inefficiencies are out there because human humans don't understand. It's the exact same thing as the Monty Hall problem where like, I know it looks this way, but to just shut up and trust the process. It's going to be fine. I promise. So that's the book. I'm sure um, we will link to the podcast episode where he joined us as well. So shouts to our friend, Justin. Um, you can get all of that in the show notes. Okay, let's get to the Glomar response. And the reason this has a name is because when it was invented, 70 something, there was a court case about this. And essentially it became a thing that was argued about because the CIA with all of their brilliance, man, they are really good at understanding exactly what they can and can't do. Um, sometimes they, they know what they can't do and they do it anyway, but for the most part, they know exactly what they can do and can't say and whatnot. So there's a mission we're going to get into. And they came out and they said, this mission, we've heard this. And they're like, you know, we can neither confirm nor deny, which is different than saying no, because they're a government body. And it's different than saying yes. And it is different than saying maybe what they're saying is we know for sure. We are not going to tell you, you may have made that up completely. You may be exactly right. We are simply acknowledging that you asked the question and saying, nope, I don't know. Yeah, well, and, and even so, it's it's barely, like, it's the minimum acceptable acknowledgement that mm-hmm. the question was asked. Was asked. Yes. So the, the, the origin of the term comes from actually the name of a ship, a U.S. Navy ship, mm-hmm. uh, called the Hughes Glomar Explorer. And uh, I, I at first thought Glomar was, like, a, a guy's dude. name. Yeah. Like some dude named Hughes Glomar. Like, what a weird name, but right. that's fun. You know, right. This is a nation. This is a, a we're we're a mosaic pattern of people of unique and diverse past. Love it. What Glomar. a cool name. What a cool wow. good character in a book. Kind of. Yeah. Like I'd love to know how the original Glomar got that name. Right. It's not. <laughs> it's not a guy's name. No. I was wrong. Uh, I guess it could be, but in this case, uh, Glomar is actually uh, an abbreviation for Global Marine. So it's like a, a, a an explorer of the seas, I guess. And right. uh, I don't know. Hughes, I guess, was a person. Uh, but it was a boat built in uh, 1974. Uh, for a CIA project called Project Azorian. Uh, re- uh, you know, we, we, we're not going to 
discuss a lot of the details of what that project was. Right, doesn't matter. To say, you know, according to according to Wikipedia, uh, Project Azorum was basically uh, a, a, a top secret mission for the CIA to go try to uh, salvage the wreckage of an undersea wrecked. A submarine from right. uh, the Soviet Union, and that that took place uh, in 1968. Uh, the K129 sunk uh, <laughs> near Hawaii. It was like northwest of Hawaii, and uh, Project Azorian was the opportunity for the CIA to say, like, okay, well, let's go see what we can, let's go see what we can extract from the wreckage here and, and what we can learn. Uh, but in 1975, uh, the LA Times was going to run a story about that. So it's, it, I, I wouldn't say it's a a local interest story. Uh, but, you know, the LA Times is one of those nationally circulated newspapers, and they were going to run a story about this top right. secret project. And so the CIA wanting to make sure that its operations were secure and, you know, trying not to get, let information that shouldn't be in public hands get into public hands. Uh, at the time, communication and information were really, really important, especially for news media, because well, we didn't have the ubiquitous internet where you could just do a search. Like, so the Kremlin couldn't just go like, Googling for secret CIA boats. Uh, and so having control of information that goes out into news media, really, really important at the time. And so the CIA tried to stop publication of this story about the the Hughes-Glomar Explorer and, and what its role was in Project Azorian. Uh, so there's this journalist named Harriet Ann Philippi. Mm -hmm. uh, she requested uh, through formal channels, through the Freedom of Information Act, uh, that the CIA disclose both the Glomar Project, so Project Azorian and the existence of this ship. And number two, its attempts to censor the story. And the CIA's response to uh, Philippi's request was to say, we neither confirm nor deny that this project exists and that we tried to keep it the story from being unpublished. So they didn't say, yes, that's true. But they didn't also say, no, that's not true. They said, we cannot confirm th that it is true. We cannot <coughs> deny that it's false. Right, and so it's an interesting choice of words. Let's let's break down the the court case a little bit. Well, I mean the this instance a little further. So the first thing is that we've got a real organization of journalism, and while you know BuzzFeed and the Daily Beast and whatnot have made journalism what it is now, back then the, the L.A. Times was a, is an organization that would have carried significant weight in the Western United States and in the Western world, to be frank. So, I mean, the Times, the, the the Wall Street Journal, I think back then you could probably say Time Magazine was like a real journalism organization, some other other ones, the uh, WAPO, Chicago, uh, Dallas Morning News. There were some really big ones. So this is a big organization. These are heavy hitters. They then, I, I would guess that she heard some stuff and papers have to do things ethically by journalism rules, which is let's go through official channels. You have to sue them under the Freedom of Information Act which is typical. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody should know how to do that. You can Google it. There are a lot of YouTube tutorials. Everyone should know how to do that. You never know when something's going to happen to your family. You need to get some records. And so she did that. They were like, yep, you got us. And the government's, you know, their court cases are like, this is a law. You have to turn shit over. But the other big player in this is not just the LA Times. It's the CIA. And the CIA can, has, and does constantly use the guys or the real threats of a national security threats to say, Yes, you might have something here. You, we need you to shut up because there could be something. Now, often we found through the years that they kind of use that as like, hey, just fuck off and leave us alone. But sometimes like, yeah, actually, there's a reason we didn't tell you this is because there's a whole bunch of stuff going on that you don't know about. Don't like, don't worry about it. So they found this language and I'm so fascinated by the language. I can, which is an active verb. I can neither 
confirm nor deny, which means I am not allowed to, or I shouldn't, or it is unethical, or whatever you want to say, the word can. Not I won't, I will not yes. confirm or deny. I cannot confirm and deny. And that word is where people in present day have got themselves in trouble. So the first thing I want to break off and say is that fucking fascinating. Brilliant. CIA oh, yeah. is brilliant. Also shouts to CIA when they showed up on Twitter. They, their, <laughs> did you see this? Their first tweet was, we can neither confirm nor deny that this is our account. <laughs> brilliant. All right. That's pretty cool. Were they, were they one of the early adopters? Were they around in like 2007? No, I want to say that was like 12, 13, 14. I remember the day they showed up, they got instant verification. They had, they followed like POTUS and like, um, some meme account or like a cat's account or something. Um, amazing. Yeah. They crushed it. They're really, really good at the internet right away, which makes sense because they're communication experts. So I don't know how long they've talked about it. I'm sure that if that was in the seventies, we'll, that shit will be declassified in about a decade or so. And we'll learn all about that process, which would be really cool for me for a judge and a newspaper and a law. The CIA found a bit of a loophole here, which is really, really kind of fun and interesting and good for them. I mean, it laws is. are laws, and and it's it's interesting that you say that too because right now, uh, at least as of the 2018 version, uh, the Glomar response is a codified term mm -hmm. in the Code of Federal Regulations. Yes. So in 32 CFR 701, mm -hmm. uh, the Glomar response is defined. It's in it's actually in 701.29, uh, and I'm going to read you the entire text. It's Let's just a it. few lines here. Yep, the Glomar response is defined as refusal by the agency and the agency in this case is department of defense so cia is not in the department of defense it's a separate organization that's part of the white house so it's in the executive branch but it's not dod it's refusal by the agency to either confirm or deny the existence or non-existence of records responsive to a foia request and foia is the freedom of information act um, there's some exemptions listed there that i'm not going to bother to look up but in this case the dod definition is refusal by the agency to confirm nor deny. So, so the CIA is like, oh, I can neither confirm nor deny. Uh, I'm, I'm using the passive voice to do a lot of work here. Like, oh, I'm at the mercy of forces beyond my control. I can't confirm or deny. I'm not, mm -hmm. I, I don't have the liberty to do that. Uh, the DOD is refusal. It's like, no, I'm not confirming that and I'm not denying that. And, uh, you know, it, it, the most of the time, the reason or justification for that is probably tied to like classification or information security. Um, it could also be tied to non-classified information that's still sensitive or not fit for uh, external use. Uh, I think there's there's like terminology surrounding that type of information called like uh, like official use only type of stuff or like you know, you know not for public release. And in those cases, that information is not necessarily it's it could be subject to an exemption to the Freedom of Information Act, uh, which otherwise is a means for people to like get information from the government about projects or whatever else they can use the, the Glomar response to neither confirm nor deny that the information exists. Because so, I, I mean, think about it this way. If the, the LA times is running this story and they say the CIA denied that this project is happening, yeah, then the Kremlin can read that story and say, well, okay, so the CIA is saying this thing just didn't happen. Right. And the LA times is saying that it did. So, like, what conclusion are we supposed to draw from that? Right. Like, how are we supposed to interpret that information? Whereas the Glomar resp response introduces minimum transparency, maximum opacity about the information. And so, in that way, it you don't get the best security for your information by denying or telling a lie. Right. Or, like, you're making a big show, like, oh, no, 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 no this is not us, it's somebody mm -hmm. else or whatever. You get maximum opacity by refusing to respond. It's like the third way. Like, mm -hmm. uh, what's the, uh, 
the lyric from the Rush song. If, if you choose, choose not, not to decide, you still have made a choice. Something like that, I'm, right? I've never been more proud. <laughs> I've never been more proud. And you know what? I, I think this is a big moment for you. God. Uh, Acknowledging your Rush fandom enough to know. Uh-huh. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to be celebrating that today. But but so the, 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 the point here is that the strategic use of that language, the decision not to deny something, is actually the best way to optimize the... It would optimize the outcome, which is, you know, CIA wants to control its own information. Yes. So, of course, the risk is, and in this country, we are um, nothing if not warriors first. And that's just how it works in the United <laughs> States. Like we, uh, happiness, um, balance, and mental health, no. Winning shit, yes. That's what we do. We want something yeah. to win. We if, if, if it can be won and we want to win it, that's everyone else fighting for second place. And that's kind of always been true. So national security has and will continue to be the, you know, the thing that we care the most about. I don't know the defense budget, but I know that it's all of the other budgets combined, kind of. So the that makes sense. So when the CIA says we can neither confirm nor deny and they're saying, hey, nope, this is bad if we even discuss this, then everyone can be like, touche, fair enough, whatever. However, that kind of shit can expand into other stuff. And I always like to make fun of sports reporting and sports writing because sports journalism <laughs> is not a thing. It is extensive no. pregame and postgame show. Real sports journalism is watching the game. Or if there's an actual journalism story, then actual journalists will show up and do it, not the guy in your local news. That guy is just telling you what's important to watch. He's an entertainment reporter as far as I'm concerned. Yes. So. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That, that's the thing. Like, people need to start treating sports just as – any Content. other form of entertainment, like yeah. it's real-time entertainment. I, guys, like if you can tell me the difference between a sporting event and an improv show. Yeah. Please, let me know. Yeah, just like that the rules are more strictly enforced, I suppose. And like you, you, you really have to say yes and otherwise, you know, there could be damage. But yeah, that's essentially, you're exactly yeah, correct. And I've been on this take for a while. I, in journalism school, like what do you do in journalism school? Three things. One, you learn about journalism history, history completely pointless uh, other than the legal stuff. Two, you practice journalism, um, which is the most important. No one cares about your degree. They care about your portfolio. And three, the most important thing for me is the philosophy of journalism and the fifth estate and the right and the freedom of speech and like all this kind of stuff, which is where this you know, falls you in. Sound like, you sound like my cousin Vinny right now. He's just like, oh, yeah, didn't they teach you the procedure in law school? He's like, no, they don't teach you procedure. They teach you contracts. Yeah. You can go to court and watch. Yeah. That's, that's what you sound like right now. That's I mean, it's true. Like, if you want to be a journalist, I recommend to you. Um, a, going to bars, hangouts, clubs, and getting people to talk to you who shouldn't be talking to you. B, learning the entire Adobe Creative Suite. And C, finding people who's asked to just kiss. Just make them like you quite a bit. Um, getting famous Sorry, on Twitter won't journalism or politics? Uh, uh, indeed. Got him. Bam. Oh, uh, wait, wait. Nope. There it is. Okay. <laughs> I'm out of shape. Beautiful. So... The theory of this for me is great because it's just this would be a great class. Like what? Like what do they say? It is this an acceptable response? Like what do you what do you print? They can neither confirm nor deny. They said that they can neither confirm nor deny, which is a fact, but it also implies like they fucking know. Like nothing says we know for sure if this is true, and then if it's printed that way, which is a really fun way to go about it. So I think of poker. I'm finding that poker and chess analogies can cover every single aspect of life all those two games cover everything in poker whenever it's your turn to bet you have three options bet which either means bet as much as your opponent or bet more fold which means like mm, nope i'm out or c you can check which is pass which is like uh, i don't know or but the passes can also be strategic like in this situation we're like we I don't want to i want to see what you guys do 
So checking is an is an aggressive move, though it seems like an opaque like, oh, I don't, I, maybe I'm just hanging around. I don't. I'm, but what you're saying is like, I no, I want to see what you guys do. It's At really that the point, Uno reverse of playing poker. Yeah, essentially. So theoretically, and this is where I mean, po- we should mean to do poker. Or we've been putting it off, and we're getting bigger, and like we should have someone on for this because game theory, optimal play in poker. But whatever. Oh yeah. So, <laughs> I love uh, Lex Friedman podcast. By the way, who's like the academic version of Joe Rogan? He's great, and <laughs> you'll if you listen to him, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Like he said on Lex chess Fried- guys, he's what, what's, on, his, what's his deal? Lex Friedman. He just interviews people for like three hours, and um, topics range from like anything like analytics and com- computing, uh, geopolitics. Like the most recent guy was about Scientology. I haven't listened to that one yet. It's just good shit to have on the background if you work from home or you hate listening to your coworkers type, uh, whatever. So he's had on poker guys, and like there's a real debate in the poker community about whether or not it is a smart move to fold your cards even with no bet behind you, right? So if you and I are playing on a table of six people and someone bets first, then I have to either bet or fold. I have to have as much, more, or fold. If the person who goes first checks, I have a third option now, which is checking. The debate in the poker community, because everything is streamed and you could read people and there are tells, is instead of checking and waiting, or even if you have a good hand, but you're like, I'm not in a good situation, just folding it and trying to gain as much information from the people around because you know what's there. So instead of actively participating, you're kind of actively observing. And I think that that we're kind of seeing this here. At a certain point, when the CIA got out of this sticky wicket, I feel like (laughs) they probably found themselves with a new trick. Like, hmm. One good way to see what the Kremlin knows or China or I don't even know who we're fucking with that other than the Soviet Union, Vietnam and and Latin American countries is to say we can neither confirm nor deny balls in your court. Now, what are you going to do? Can you lie as well as we can lie? Well, and and I think the the poker analogy becomes just a little different because one of the goals here, like there, there are sort of competing goals in this case, like poker, everybody's trying to go for the pot. Like yeah. You're trying to either minimize your losses or maximize your gains by sure. winning the pot, winning the hand, playing the people against you. So everybody has different, like there are different positions in the race to get to the same goal. Yeah. In this case, though, in the CIA's case, for the origin of the Glomar response term, their goal was to protect information so that their operations could go securely uh, without interference or detection by uh, U.S. adversaries. But the goal of the journalists, by the goal of Harriet, Harriet Ann Philippi, and the goal of journalists everywhere is to hold de- democratic governments accountable, it's to hold the U.S. government accountable for its actions. And you do so by having a free press that can write the stories they write, get the information they need to get by whatever means they need to get them, uh, and make editorial decisions on whether and how to frame that information if they decide to, to actually publish it. So the little bit different angles here. At the end of the day, they do have the common theme of trying to control information, uh, but one is for the purposes of holding a government mm-hmm. accountable, and the other is for the purposes of like national, like, great power competition like strategic competition with with an adversary and so it's kind of like a like almost like a uh mistrust i don't know about mistrust it's like a triangle of competitive relationships here where like the soviet union and u.s journalism are not really competing although yeah. they are kind of con- trying to control the information space. yeah so it, it it is a little bit it, it's slightly different but the mechanism of foisting the burden of proof onto somebody else by not confirming and not denying either i think that mechanism has utility in both cases whether yes. the, the goal is essentially the same or whether they're slightly different versions so yes and i think that where the analogy is strong and kind of in in, in keeping with this is that 
if you once you recognize that it's this is not just to get out of it, a, a, a reporter who's got you by the you know what the sack if you want if you're if you want to use a male uh, analogy by the, or by the you know what by the you know what family edited version of the show Did, is somebody going to go through this, this is a peacock version edit yeah, this? this is this is the peacock version which is really somebody i mean i can't believe i gotta go watch it now yeah i mean i livid livid i rewound like seven times livid so pissed the once they get out of this sticky wicket they're like this is an, an interesting new tool so if you look at geopolitics and you say like metaphorically, there are players at the table, Germany, Soviet Union, whoever, doesn't matter. You know what you have and what's going on. And you know what information you have for sure publicly released. What you don't know is what your opponent has or what they've, and you also know what they think they've released and what you think that they've released. So you kind of, that's where the, the poker stuff comes in strong, right? So like, say if the Soviet Union puts out a statement, you're like, bullshit or true, doesn't matter. They're like, well, we have intelligence that tells us this. Is that intelligence true or false? I don't know. So it becomes like this, this back and forth where all of this is to say they start using the media and other responses as a form of OPSEC, which is a term that we've said and we haven't defined. It means operational security, which is just like how good is your game at living and winning? Well, it's it's uh, operational security is about controlling information and and not telling people things they don't need to know. Right. So like one one of the deals about like the Glomar response is it dealt with a tie, a highly classified operation by the U.S. government to do something uh, to to like salvage adversary like equipment or whatever. And the nature of that operation has to be top secret, has to be classified because that's the best way to protect information. And so operational security. It would be like for everybody involved in this operation, even if you know that you were like your coworker sitting next to you at the at the ops management center desk or whatever, even if you know that person's your colleague, they ne don't necessarily need to also know the details of your job on this operation. So op right. OPSEC is basically just like, shut up. Just don't tell people stuff. And it's, you know, it applies in everyday life to like people's basic information. Like it's the reason you don't tell, share your passwords with people unless you're watching Netflix. <laughs> it's the reason you don't give away like your name and address to randoms you find on the streets. The reason that you take care of your personal information on the internet so that people can't go snooping around and find information about you and use it against you in some way. And so the, the, the Glomar response is, sort of the organization's way of saying, this is how we're protecting our operational security. This is more effective for our goals for controlling that information than it would be to lie about it or conduct subterfuge. And and actually, I, I think it's also important at this point to draw a distinction between the like classified, highly sensitive operational nature yeah. of the origin story of the Glomar response sure, yep. versus keeping information secret for kind of other little more unsavory yeah. reasons. You know right. what I'm talking about? Yes. So I don't know if you have the examples that I have, but I do know that this is an active ongoing thing, the Glomar response, because just like anything else with the United States government and the third branch of our government, the judicial system, once there is precedent that something is chill, then that kind of is a law other without being legislated. It becomes a right mm. sort of, like an off-the-books right. So, for example, your Miranda rights once a judge rules that you have those rights, you have those rights, and then it keeps getting ruled and ruled and ruled and ruled, and then eventually it becomes like part of being an American. Or the courts have to figure out a different thing to do, or the legislative body has to strike it down or let it happen. So once this happens in the 70s, a bunch of other bodies in the uh, federal government and state government start to realize like, holy shit, we can just say this. In America, yeah. you can't. Right. You're supposed to have the freedom of... of 
speech and there has to be certain government officials are required by law to disclose things to the press and to the public. However, here's this get me out of jail free card where I can just like, it's essentially a fuck off where the CIA, they can do that for the most part under certain circumstances with their huge budget and their national defense. Yep. Like, Hey, stop asking questions about Hitler. Shut up. They can do that. Your local police department investigating a crime is not quite as chill. And then other government agencies that have nothing to do with high risk murder, war kind of stakes, they have started to do it immediately as well because there's there's court precedent. People figured out that this is a great way to kind of not say anything. Yeah, no, it it, it really is. And, it, you know, there's there's a really prominent example from th- that uh, the olds among us, those of us who are <laughs> – whose lives were fundamentally shifted by 9-11, uh, right. probably remember the, in the follow-on, uh, the, you know, the invasion of Iraq, the invasion of Afghanistan, uh, our, our, our kind of counter-terrorism, counter-regime, counter-WMD, whatever, our military operations in, in war zones in the Middle East. Uh, one of the worst things to come out of, uh, of our invasion of Iraq uh, were the abuses at the Abu Ghraib prison yes. uh, in Baghdad. Uh, in 2004... Uh, the ACLU levied a case against the Department of Defense, or 2005, sorry. The ACLU uh, brought a case against the Department of Defense arguing for the release of information related to allegations of abuse at that prison. Uh, so a story broke in 2004 uh, where you know, that was the first time information went public about you know, what was allegedly happening at the Abu Ghraib prison. And we're talking like photos of abuse, stories of abuse, and like not you know run-of-the-mill, you're a uh, confirmed terrorist and you're being in prison so your life isn't going to be fun it's like actual systematic sexual abuse humiliation violations of all kinds of torture fucking torture yeah yeah like game of thrones torture yeah yes no kidding and so in this case the department of defense legal team used the glomar response as its strategy they said we can neither confirm nor deny that the allegations being made in this suit are happening uh, at this prison center. We, it, it was known that Abu Ghraib was a, was a detention facility. Um, so that, like, the existence of it wasn't the same. It's not like the Glomar ship, like, where the CIA can't neither confirm nor deny the existence of it. DOD is saying, we can neither confirm nor deny that, uh, th- that what is happening at this prison center is happening at this prison center. And that's because there was a level of classification tied to that stuff. Right. Uh, the judge in in 2005 ruled, Judge Al, uh, Alvin Hellerstein, uh, said that, okay, the Glomar response is legit. You can neither confirm nor deny for information security reasons. But in this case, the ACLU's argument is stronger, uh, and so their FOIA request can go through, um, those documents can be released, and that's because this isn't about you know controlling information in the security environment to conduct an operation. Uh, this is about government... Uh, a government-sanctioned uh, abuse uh, of you know, violation of individual rights or the rights of prisoners. Uh, this is about misconduct on the part of the U.S. government. And so, when it comes to like classifying information or or having basic operational security about sensitive info, it's one thing to classify it for national security reasons. It's another to try to keep it classified or under wraps <coughs> to cover up for misconduct, malfeasance, abuse, uh, to avoid embarrassment for the organization, to avoid embarrassment or accountability for individuals involved. Uh, and so in this case, uh, the Glomar response was not just a magic get-out-of-jail-free card. That argument was weighed against the merits of the ACLU's case. Uh, and in this case, uh, the, the the national security dimension just was not there or wasn't there in a strong enough degree degree to allow or to 
justify the DOD to continue to withhold information. Uh, and so the FOIA request went through and people found out the horrors of what was happening in Abu Ghraib. Yeah. And so this is now we have a precedent where, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me, like the precedent is that the precedent isn't the precedent anymore. Now there's, there is an opening once one judge <laughs> say that, rules. Say that again. The precedent is that the precedent isn't the precedent anymore. Brilliant. Follow me. Thank you so much. I, I think, I, I, think I, I think I do get that actually. Yeah. So wh essentially what it does is this is the precedent 30 years, whatever. Then someone's like, hmm, I don't know. Let's revisit this. This is the case. And then all of a sudden that precedent isn't strong enough to just be like blanket. Like now people with military operations that are in a foreign country, they can't simply say national security all the time for every single thing. That means that everything underneath that same thing. That means that if, 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 if your local police department was pulling that because of precedent in the you know, 19, 1994, now Abu Ghraib happens. They're like, every single one of these is open to a, its own separate court thing because unless it's the Supreme Court, every circuit and appeals court now gets to look at this, which means that every single time someone says, I can neither confirm nor deny, the new precedent is, is the national security didn't, wasn't strong enough, which means that these local organizations would theoretically have to prove national security at risk, which is not the same thing as, for example, a train derailing and dumping a bunch of really crazy chemicals all over the ground. Those kinds of people can't say neither confirm nor deny. Now, there's one weird Rubik's Cube of this, which is that our country... One, one weird trick. One weird little... Yes. One little click, 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 click Rubik's Cube that... Prosecution. The only thing our country loves more than winning is making money. We are the greatest money makers of all time. It is not it's close. It's true. Everyone, freedom of religion, that's why our country... No. Freedom of not having to answer to the Bourbons and the Windsors and the Medicis anymore. That's what this country is founded on. <laughs> Fuck those people. That's what, they're, that's what this country... Uh, to quote Rihanna, bitch better have my money. That's what this country, that should be on our, our everything in America. Bitch better have my money. should be on our money. That should be, that should be on our money. That'd be dope. But <laughs> East Palestine is a company. So theoretically, there's an argument to be made that like these are trade secrets. Like we can't, the government can't level the playing field for us. So I think we're going to see that play out. However, this is an active bomb, not the spill in East Palestine. That's just an environmental disaster that will probably kill many people and animals over the next 20 or 30 years. But and ruin their quality of life. Yeah. Absolutely. Completely abandon that place. Um, Shouts to Donald Trump for repealing the safety laws. What's up? Uh, but this is an active situation. There are watchdog organizations that are suing things like NYPD is involved in a couple of lawsuits where this is not acceptable. So much so that the Biden administration in March of 2022... I don't know who was in control of Congress at that point in time. I think Democrats were still were. There was a congressional subcommittee that created <clears throat> or their, their job was to go look at federal government agencies and their use of the Glomar response. And what they found was a lot, a lot of them are using it really? all of the time. They came out with recommendations, including we need their every organization should have a website that says this is why you could be potentially Glomar if you a citizen are seeking records to they are also recommending, and I don't think anything came of this, obviously, but <laughs> these are recommendations. So thank you. <laughs> I know. Great. Awesome. Thanks for doing something about this. Really good. You looked into it, and now it's on the internet. So well, nothing we could do. Right. The other recommendation that I found interesting, they had four recommendations. The interesting one to me was that they wanted essentially to set up a system where any organization that used NCND, which is what they're calling it, they have to justify that. Like there's going to be a review, be like, okay, so what about this NCND? Like, what about this one? And what about this one? And what about this one? To kind of discourage people from just like from a blanket saying, hey, what is, what is NCND? Is it like non? Neither confirm, non deny. Yeah, non neither confirm, confirm nor deny. deny. 
Yeah, so that's uh, what that's what they're they're calling it. So let's see the fourth the fourth recommendation. Uh, recommend that the archivist of the United States identify a relevant government office to conduct a review of these and practice NCND responses across the government. Formulate a se- set of recommendations to ensure that these responses are being used in a manner consistent with the goals of the Freedom of Information Act. So they're saying that so many people are using them; they are kind of breaking the law in a way. Like, and again, I I mean, I don't know what your take is, but like the CIA using them, I'm like, okay, sure. Everyone else, I'm like, you should have to prove it at least behind closed doors that it, there is a reason. I, it, it seems to me that the, the problem here is that in when it comes to like operational security or like legal strategies in the case of like having a suit brought against you because you mm-hmm. don't follow through with the FOIA request, I, I think it's it's important to have like be aware of like all like the legal tools that you have at your disposal to be able to control information and protect your organization's like operations uh, but it sounds to me like the case here is that okay well everybody knows about the glomar response so we'll just deploy that no matter what right. and like what that does is creates uh, it creates unnecessary bureaucratic gridlock and it potentially creates legal gridlock if you have to review every single like use of the Glomar response, every NCND for for every individual claim in like a FOIA request that wastes a lot of people's time because it may not necess- be necessary for the type of information that the organization is being asked to provide by a FOIA request. So I think this would be a good way to eliminate fraud, waste, and abuse. Uh, but, you know, I also think it depends on the type of information. Like, you know, you don't want to tie down the bureaucracy in any more red tape. But at the same time, it's hard to tell whether, like, you can't just say, like, all types of information of X variety deserve to be protected right. from FOIA. No, like, no. It's very hard to do that unless you do it on a case-by-case basis. And so when it comes, like, and even, like, and even to me, like, I don't think the organization that uses the response matters. So you say, no. like, oh, yeah, I'm cool with CIA doing it. Like, yeah. well, I am, but I'm also not cool with the with the agency, like, abusing prisoners and like torturing mm-hmm. people. Either. Sure. So like right. just because they're a very secretive organization and they have a very important mission in national security doesn't mean that they shouldn't be held accountable. So I, I, it's, it's hard to balance that. And, and the truth of it is, I think that hard cases make bad law. And when you have like really big high profile examples of the use of, of, of a legal strategy, I think one of the problems is that it just adds another layer of like precedent that you got to have to either fight through uh, or that's going to steer away a lot of otherwise important cases. So, you know, it's, it's an important legal tool. It's an important operational security tool, uh, but I don't think it's one that should be, uh, it, it shouldn't be used like glibly. Yeah. Uh, and, so- and I also want to like, I also want to draw draw a distinction between this and the uh, the amnesia defense. <laughs> I was just watching uh, I was just watching Thirty Rock the other day, and it yeah. was the episode where uh, Jack finds out that Frank always wanted to go to law school, but mm-hmm. he became a writer or whatever. And he's all like, Frank goes into his office, all like cleaned up. He doesn't have his stupid hat on. He's like ready to enroll at Columbia, and Jack's like. Uh, I'm I'm so proud of you, and I can't wait for you to liberally deploy the seven most important words in the justice system. And Frank goes. My client has no memory of that. (laughs) (laughs) I do not recall. And then Jack's like, uh, I would have also accepted, you can't prove that's the governor's semen. (laughs) (laughs) Did you see that MILF Island, a bit from 30 Rock, is going to be a TV show? No, it's not. It's not called MILF Island. I swear to God. There is going to be a reality TV show where they're older moms and then they're like 20-year-olds. I know there's Love Island. Are you kidding me? I'm not joking. Oh, no. I'm not joking. And so that means we're going to, have to do dating game part three. Is this they really also happening? have 
They also have AI generated Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. Did you see that? Uh huh. Yeah. Tina so, Fey is a prophet. Okay, so I have not looked into this. So th- this is me like speaking off the cuff. Yeah. But I did see that for a short period of time, somebody was like, it, it, you know, it's it's not like realistic looking images of like Jerry and George like marching through Jerry's apartment and frustratedly trying to figure out some nonsense problem. It's like weird <laughs> kind of 3D block like animation style. But uh, the script is based on like Seinfeld and whatever else. But it got taken down. It's supposed to be like 24 hours of nothing, just nothing forever. And it got taken down because like after two days, it started devolving into like really bad conspiracism and oh, like, anti-Semitism and all yeah, kinds of yeah, It's yeah. like just like you know, the long arc of history been toward being a piece of shit online <laughs> yeah, and Seinfeld artificial Seinfeld is no but so but so there's another there's another case of a 30 rock bit becoming an actual thing is the yes is the the forbidden fruit in the garden of Adam and Eve the internet we shall oh never know God oh. yes it, well it is the fruit of the tree of knowledge it theory. is the fruit of the yes <laughs> so, God. yes uh, my client has no recollection has no of, that. of that has absolutely no no memory of that. So for for me, the Glomar response has been, I mean, it's going to trend to the Supreme Court at some point. It's headed there. Otherwise, the legislative branch is going to have to do something. And they're, the subcommittee recommended some shit because they found this. So those are their recommendations that came at the end of a report that found the following. The subcommittee noted that the use of the neither confirm nor deny response had expanded beyond the national security context Two, for example, protecting privacy and ongoing criminal investigations. To common understanding, both among the requester community and an executive branch, that is such a response is to be used in extraordinary circumstances only. So they're saying like nobody uses it for what it was designed for ever. It's never relevant anymore. Furthermore, Chris, I have more. This is great. Well, You'll I, love this. I, I'll, I'll break in real quick just yeah. to say that it, it is used in relevant cases. Uh, and anybody who's ever tried to submit a FOIA request will tell you that. And, and you know, people yeah, in D.C. Plenty. get here because I think they think like, oh, I'm closer to where I'm trying to FOIA. This will help me. Like, no, no everything takes forever. But uh, I, I do think it is still used appropriately. It's also just used much more often when it's not appropriate. But so go on. So, what is our motto? Never attribute to malice what can be attributed to laziness or an incompetence. Laziness to incompetence to incapability, yes. The subcommittee noted that in many cases, agencies interpose an NCND response without even performing a search for records. It's not that they don't have them or that they don't want to hand them over. It's that they don't want to deal with you. Absolutely incredible and by the way like if you think there's like some magical FOIA wizard sitting at every organization waiting to take FOIA requests and give the right information it's not oftentimes what it is is like 20 somethings with very few qualifications and a lot of ambition to change the world sitting in a shitty brutalist architecture mm-hmm. building in downtown Washington brutalist uh, great word. and yeah, being like shoved sucks. work that nobody else wants to do right Yo, and yo, yo, the architecture here sucks. sucks. And if I had a nickel for every t- person who's like really psyched about it, it's like, oh yeah, that's brutalism. Like if you drive by one of the buildings here, it looks like those like horrible dystopian pictures of like abandoned Soviet apartment buildings. It's like half the buildings here look like that. And people are like, oh my God, yeah, that's brutalism architecture style. Like if I had a nickel for every irritating uppity little <laughs> graduate student who pointed that out to me during the time that I've lived here, I would have enough money to pay off my own student loans. 
I just, much- I, I can't, I cannot be bothered to think about the brutalism anymore because it's so horrifically ugly and stupid. It's the worst thing that ever hit we, American design. You can't Period. just label shit that's ugly and then say it's like some sort of artistic movement. It's just yeah, not. like it's not <laughs> like, bro, like you couldn't do anything more complex than right angles and straight lines, and you had a bunch of concrete. Like, don't tell me that's like a design plan. Yeah. Grow up. Yeah. So, I, but anyway, anyway, like the, the the point about this is like <laughs> the the people who are managing the FOIA requests are they don't the real people, people in the they don't want to be there. Don't. Yes. Yeah. They don't want to be. They don't want to be yes. sitting there like answering some like clowns FOIA requests. Like, well, the government's not going to like when I ask for this information. Like, no, they don't care. There's somebody who's sitting at a desk who doesn't have enough experience or authority to be able to say, "I'm not doing this," and I'm delegating to somebody else. They're the last one on the totem pole. They're the one who is actively mired in the shit that rolls downhill, bureaucratically speaking. Right. And they're gonna like I don't know but they're probably not like super experienced or good at, or they don't care about doing FOIA requests. So yeah, they they're do what they're told. They do what they're legally required to do. Yeah. Uh, but it's not anybody's priority, man. No, it's no. And, and, and this is the federal government. The subcommittee looked into the federal government. There's no way it can be better at the state government where there's like most of these states simply can't afford no. to pay someone to do that kind of work. So like when you hear these like true crime things that go unsolved, they're like, they can't find it and they won't turn over the records. Like, yeah, like, some guy has a big desk of shit. They don't care about you. This is boring to them. It's not like they're trying to hide for the cops. No, they don't no. give a fuck about this. <laughs> that, that's what's that. There's no malice. I'm sure that in some cases there is malice, but for the most part there isn't. But I have two, I have two thoughts for you, Chris, as we, as we wrap up this episode. Thought number Twice one. as many as I've ever had. Yeah. The Idaho murder situation has showed me that with the virality, virility, whichever no, one. No, not virility. That's virility. Virility. No, yeah. Virility is like I'm a healthy viral right. uh, paterfamilias. Yeah, yes. No, you're not talking, you're talking about how viral Going viral. Is. Yeah. Yes. So wait, add it. Virality. <laughs> virality. <laughs> virality. It feels like a weird word. Yeah, it does. Now I can't stop thinking about the Vs. I can't. Yeah. Oh, so Same. with TikTok is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> the Idaho... Uh, Police, the Moscow police, the FBI, and some other groups that worked to find this this alleged killer, they knew pretty quickly, like, we're going to have to manipulate these fucks because they're going to be on this. These are four people in their prime. They're attractive, and they're white. This story is going to get a lot of publicity. A lot of attention. This is the true crime wet dream. So what they did was they didn't glomar. They did something much smarter. They fucked with the people. The people then got super annoying and they completely threatened professors and they came up with a bunch of conspiracy theories and many of them will be in court and possibly jail for quite some time for making shit up. But the investigators were like, we're going to have to make it look like, because they knew that they were dealing with like a wannabe serial killer. They figured that out from like a stuff and they were on him like literally within 12 hours. They also knew that all of us, he was dumb, very stupid, nowhere near as smart as he thought he was. We, they knew that all of us would be totally into this. So they wanted to, A, make him seem smart so that he would, like, drive across the country. Easy peasy. And they wanted us to, like, completely not pay attention to what was actually happening. So instead of saying neither confirm nor deny, we don't have suspects, we're looking into it. Instead of blackballing the media, they gave little breadcrumbs to make it look like they had no idea what they were doing. And instead, they had every idea what they were doing. So I think Genius. that this is... That's going to be what we see. And the OPSEC is going to become towards poker playing where there's going to be intentional lying or partial truths or you don't have to say that you've named a suspect. If you know exactly what you don't have to do, you can just not do that, but actively not do it. And I think that's going to start happening at a broader scale because that worked perfect. 
Yeah, and th- and that's like a that's like a basic uh, that's counterintelligence one hundred and one. Like there's, there's a bunch of examples like uh, Operation Mincemeat was a British mm-hmm. uh, mission in World War Two. The very basic bit of it was like they basically got a dead body, had him wash up on the shore of a German beach with apparently like secret looking information in his pocket that like the British are going to attack here, uh, and then they attack somewhere else. And there's evidence that suggests that the Operation Mincemeat worked because the Germans fortified the wrong location uh, and. They, as a result, uh, D-Day happened and the Allies won. So uh, that, that, that's a good that's good counterintelligence operation. So it's not like the, you know, the Glomar response is the panacea of people who need to control their information. So the second thing... What was the I other had. thought? Yeah, second thought. Um, and this is a take that I've been squatting on for some time, and I feel ready to unleash it onto the planet Earth. Great. Buckle up, player three. Yeah, let's, do you want to just take a minute to uh, let that sink in? This is the moment oh, that God. everything changes forever. Oh, no. Okay. I think that being compelled by any sort of legal documentation to on the stand under oath answer a yes or no question is unconstitutional and immoral and, and nobody should be required to do it it's incredible because your formal training isn't even in the law no it isn't but <laughs> great start we're off to a great being, start being required well it actually it is unconstitutional as defined by the 5th amendment Yes, you are well, not required to testify against yourself. You are not against you yourself. Are no, I correct. mean, testify in any way at all. Anybody asks you a yes or no question, it is my opinion that 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 question, in being asked, is unconstitutional. Wow, I wonder. I, I do wonder what like gen, like actual legal scholars think of that. I would like to. I've I, I've posed it in like some threads and comment sections, and everyone's like, uh, like I would like like a Rogan level interview. Like, will you please fucking explain this to me? Because I've thought about this for years, and I put a yes, lot so of depth into this. Are you ready for this? So the reason I like neither confirm nor deny is it's, I call it a quadra response. A it quadra is, response. So you're not saying yes or no. You could have said yes or no. You could have confirmed. You could have denied. Or you can say I didn't confirm. I didn't deny. Which those are that's four response possibilities right there. Which means that if you're asking a yes or no question, that is a binary response question. It is either yes or no. But by ins- answering yes, by answering yes, you've confirmed that the, the, the predicate in the sentence of the question is wholly true. And if you're doing that under oath, you've lied because the majority of the time there are no opinions or facts that can be so simply stated as to say, this is true. Yes. No, that is not the wholeness of my thought. My name is not Nick. My name is this. It's almost every answer to a yes or no question is some sort of version of kind of. Huh? Yeah. I thought about this a lot. Like think about your opinion on anything. Like what are your opinion on the Red Wings? Are they good? Yeah. Like, well, no, go into depth. Are they good? What is good? What is my opinion? Like, how, when was the last time you wrote some sort of report? You're like, does this summarize the answer to one yes or no question? The witness is an expert, and the court will hear his opinion. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, so it's, it's at this point we should say like we would never give anybody legal advice ever. No, God. we would never give anybody any kind of advice for any reason at all. Do not listen to what we have to say and take it as a way about of like anything. Really, how you live your life. Maybe Nothing. NFL gambling. Maybe. Not even that. I would. Maybe. Well, do if you want to do that. Go to my podcast. podcast of the show. Interesting to see interesting daily see. podcast about news, narratives, takes and sports. Do yeah. not do that here. No, uh, I would never give anybody any kind of advice except for stop listening to us. That said, uh, that's an interesting question. And if anybody out there, uh, player yep. three, if any of you are constitutional lawyers or have any uh, actual, you know, experienced insight on this, that's an interesting question. And uh, I'd really like to hear from you. Like, I would like to know what would happen in like a murder investigation where say you're a witness for the prosecution and you're being cross-examined and they're trying to like prove whatever. And then you just answer kind of. 
<laughs> kind of. Will you elaborate? It's like, well, how much time do you have? Like, I, is it true that you were here on this date? It's like for five minutes, for five minutes at this point in time, like nothing, yes or no questions are, they are almost always just a complete impossibility. You're painting with, to use the My Cousin Vinny card thing, or to continue with My Cousin Vinny when he does the cards, they're stacking an argument and it's built on these binary answers when the truth is almost never, never affirmative. But if you didn't get back to the barracks till 1645, how could you have been in your room at 1620? Exactly, exactly, exactly. I've been thinking about that for a while. It seems like relevant to the Glomar stuff. So here we are. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to Glomar myself to some Red Wings games. They have back-to-back games in the early (laughs) part of this week. Going to Glomar my FOIA. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to FOIA their practice and be like, what what are we doing? (laughs) (laughs) I got to go feed my cat. She's looking pretty pissed. Can't say a Yeah.